Well, grab your Bible. We are in the book of Second Timothy. Second Timothy. If you need a Bible, there's some under the seat just in front of you. While you're turning there, let me give you just a couple of announcements. Really, I, I want to give you uh, just an encouragement. Um, during the holiday season, a lot of needs arise, and uh, the benevolence calls uh, skyrocket, as you might imagine. In an economy such as ours, uh, we are already seeing an increase of those. But at this season in particular, you always you always find that people have needs. And uh, I want to just by way of encouragement say that I've been so uh, just so proud to see how you, uh, the body of Cornerstone, have stepped up to many of those needs. Uh, more and more needs just come in. And, and then I see an email that this one gets met. And then I see another email that this one gets met. Uh, we're going to be helping a, a young lady who uh, I can't recall. Uh, her situation, she's disabled, and um, she lives not too far from here. And a social worker called me a little while back and said, hey, I think you guys might be able to help her. And uh, that sort of got bounced around and delayed, and we were doing the Christmas shoe boxes, and we're doing uh, the toy drive that you guys have been doing phenomenal for to give toys away on uh, Christmas morning at Pancakes at Beef O'Brady's. And we, we were doing all these different things, and um, long story short, it kind of got set on the back burner and set on the back burner, and the social worker called me back and said, hey, we still don't have anybody to help this young lady. Are you guys available? And uh, within a matter of just a couple of days, I think Dee sent out an email, our women's director, and, uh, and I'm just watching all these emails bounce back and forth. We'll get this. We'll get this. If she needs this, uh, I'll get her that. Uh, how about this? I mean, things that weren't even on this lady's list. And you guys are just being phenomenal. So uh, praise God for uh, planting that seed of compassion in this body. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, Second uh, Timothy... We have taken uh, two weeks to introduce this book, and for good reason, because I wanted, to, I wanted to be sure that you understood the plight of Paul, where he was when he wrote this letter. And what you found was he's sitting in uh, what could uh, kindly be called a dungeon. Amen? And uh, hopefully in taking those two weeks to just really look at Paul's situation, you, you'll come to appreciate what he has to say, even in these first few verses, even more. Because let me tell you what he's going to do here. He's writing this letter to Timothy. It's sort of the young man who's going to uh, take the torch from Paul's hand, take the baton from Paul's hand. And he's going to write this letter to encourage him. Now, do you understand a little bit of the irony in that or, or the, just, the, just the comedy in that? That a guy who's stuck down in a dungeon wants to help the guy who's, who's out doing the ministry be encouraged. That's what we're going to see right here. How do you encourage men and women in their faith? How do you encourage men and women in the ministry? I read a story. I actually heard a story about uh, Bear Bryant. And uh, uh, back when he was coaching for the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide uh, college football Story goes that they were playing Auburn. Who was the coach at Auburn back then? Who was it? Is it Pat Dye? Uh, another famous, uh, well-respected coach. And Auburn and Alabama were just rivals, especially in those years, because they were both very good, and uh, they would just go head-to-head every year. And the story goes that in one of their crucial games, uh, it came down to the last couple minutes. And Alabama had the ball on the 20 going into Auburn's uh, uh Auburn's goal, but they were already ahead. Now their first string quarterback had gotten hurt. And so the second string quarterback who hadn't seen the field yet has to go in. And the story goes that coach Bear Bryant, who was never short on words. Okay. And was kind of an intimidating figure 
if you know much about college football. He pulls this second-string quarterback uh, off the field as he begins to run on the field and take the first-string quarterback's place to finish the game, to, to clinch the win. He grabs him by his jersey, and he pulls him close, and he puts his mouth right on this guy's ear hole. And he says very clearly, all right, we're winning this game. Don't lose this game. Run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. Do not pass the ball. Essentially, they just had to run out the clock. So the guy goes onto the field after having uh, this admonition from his coach, this encouragement from his coach. And uh, he hits the huddle. First down, they run the ball, didn't get anywhere. Second down, they run the ball, didn't get anywhere. Third down, they run the ball, didn't get anywhere. But they're running out the clock. Fourth down, he goes to hand the ball off to his running back as his coach had instructed him, and the, and the ball gets muffled, and now he finds himself, the running back gone, and he's standing in the backfield with the ball. And he starts scrambling around, and all of a sudden he realizes that he sees another one of his players wide open in Auburn's end zone. So he passes the ball. What he didn't realize was that the fastest man in the game, the fastest man on the field, was on Auburn's side of the ball, and he sprinted over because he saw the open man as well, and he intercepted the pass. And now Auburn has the ball, and the fastest man in the game that day is sprinting the other way, 100 yards. And the story goes that this second-string quarterback, who wasn't normally very fast on his own, he chases this guy down, and he makes the game-saving tackle. Later on, Pat Dye, the coach of Auburn, uh, had an opportunity to talk to Bear Bryant, and he said, Coach, I read the scouting report. I know that your first-string quarterback is pretty fast, but I also know that your second-string quarterback is very slow. How in the world did he catch the fastest guy on the field that day? And Bear Bryant kind of grinned, and he said, I'll tell you, your guy was running for the goal line and a touchdown. My guy was running for his life. Because if he wouldn't have caught that guy, he would have gotten a little more in his ear hole and uh, he would have been best just to run through the tunnel out of the stadium and all the way home and never see Coach Bryant again. He was running for his life. Football coaches have an interesting way of encouraging you, (laughs) Uh, an interesting way of motivating you. Paul, Paul has a, a unique way of grabbing Timothy by his jersey and pulling him close. And encouraging him here in Second Timothy. I read a uh, sort of a just a make-believe story about Satan and his tools. And the story went that Satan was going to have a yard sale and he was going to sell off all of his tools. And his tools were all lined up on display so people can come and prior to the sale see what he has, see what these tools are, and and perhaps get ready to bid on them in this garage sale and. Uh, as uh, one of the customers, the prospective buyers, was looking at the tools that Satan had lined up, he sees them labeled well, envy, hatred, jealousy. Um, and he goes down the line and he comes to a separate table and he sees another tool that he doesn't recognize. And it's got a price tag on it higher than all the other tools. And he goes over to Satan and he says, what is this tool? I don't recognize it. And uh, why is it priced so high? And the adversary replied to him, he says, oh, yes. He said, that tool is my favorite of all. It's called discouragement. And he said, most people don't recognize it as mine. And he said, it's very worn out because I use it on just about everyone. He said, I pry into their hearts with this 
tool of discouragement. And now I can cause them to do anything I want them to do. And it's priced so high because it's dear to me and I don't want to give that one up. And all the other tools get sold, but nobody would pay the price for discouragement. It kind of struck me. Uh, The tool that Satan uses to discourage God's people is sometimes uh, not the most obvious one. We don't always tag it to him, do we? But he works with that tool in our hearts. And we, in a sense, can become uh, somewhat useless when we're discouraged. Paul doesn't want to let that happen to Timothy. He's going to undergird this young man with a stable ground from which to do his ministry upon. How do you do that? Watch Paul's logic right here. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, let me tell you what an apostle is. The word simply means Someone who is sent out. He is, an, he is an ambassador. He is an emissary for someone else. It's not a message of his own. He has a message that he carries from someone else. Whose message is he carrying? He is an apostle of Christ Jesus himself. He is, a, he is an ambassador chosen uniquely by Christ Jesus himself to take a message into the world. What is the message? The message is the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now notice a couple things. It's not his message. He's, he's not the one with the power of the message. The message comes by the will of God, verse 1. And it's according to a promise of life in Christ Jesus. Paul is the messenger. But what you also need to understand is this, this is Paul's mark of authority. This is what gives Paul the right to speak into another man's life. And so the first thing he's going to say to Timothy is... I have a right to say what I'm going to say here. Now, he's not rubbing up next to him like a buddy and saying, hey, you might want to listen to me here or uh, think about this. He's coming with authority when he says, Paul, an apostle, I've been sent not by my own will, but by the will of God. My message is in Christ Jesus. And specifically, did you notice the message? It's according to the promise of life. Very interesting choice of words right here. If you're going to encourage somebody. Well, that's a very encouraging picture that the message and the authority that comes with that message is a message of a promise. And God cannot fail or lie on his promises. Right. Is that an encouragement? Amen. And it's not a it's not a promise of death. It's a it's encouraging promise. It's a promise of life. And that life is in a phrase that Paul likes to use over and over in all of his writing. It's life in Christ in Christ. So that's Paul's authority. That's Paul's authority. Now, that authority creates part of this foundation underneath Timothy. Now watch this. 2, verse 2, Timothy, my beloved son. Now some people wonder why. If you're going to write to someone that is so dear to you that you have such a personal relationship with, like a beloved son. Other places in scripture he calls him my true child In the Lord, my true child in faith. Here he gets even more personal in his last will and testament on this earth. He speaks to Timothy and he says, my beloved son. It's the same terminology you would use if you were actually talking to your literal son. Now, maybe I shouldn't make an assumption here. Uh, Maybe you need to realize uh, that Timothy is not Paul's son. By all indications, Paul was single and he had no children. Timothy was not his literal son. 
But in Paul's mind, both spiritually and you get the idea here that Paul has, in a sense, adopted him. And Paul thinks of this young man as his actual son. That's the wording here. If you didn't know that Paul didn't have any sons and you just read this, you would come to understand and believe that this is actually his biological child. That's how personal this is. Now, why, if you're that personal, do you start with verse one talking about your authority? Let me give you a little idea why I think that is. When you raise children, and I'm by no means a uh, long-term veteran on this, we, my wife and I, are still struggling to figure it out. But here's one thing I've realized, uh, especially with Grady, who's six years old now. Being a father to him uh, requires that sometimes I remind him of my authority before he can embrace my personal value and love for him. Does that make sense? Yeah? Uh, I was helping him just the other morning uh, get dressed and uh, he was tired. He was, you know, trying to wake up and go to school. And uh, he was trying to put on his jeans. Simple thing. He was trying to put on his jeans, but he left them zipped up. They were unbuttoned, but they were zipped up. And I said, son, unzip them before you try and put them on. He's struggling trying to get these things on. He can't get them on. He's getting frustrated. And I said, son, unzip your pants. It, it won't help. It won't help. And sometimes when he says things like that, I just, I just have to chuckle. It won't help. And I've come up with this little uh, game that I play with him, and he's starting to get used to it. He knows what I mean now when I ask him, how old is your dad? How old is your dad? And he now just smiles, and he did that morning when I asked him after he told me, it won't help if I unzip them. How old is dad? 35. How old are you? Six. Dad has been putting pants on for 35 years. You've been doing it for how long? Six. Trust me, son, if you unzip them, it will be easier. Now, that's a silly illustration. And there are other times that I've asked him the same question in more important situations, in more costly situations, in more dangerous, perhaps, situations. Son, look at me, okay? Does dad want the worst for you? No. Does dad want the best for you? Yes. How old am I? 35. How old are you? Six. (laughs) Trust me, son. You see, my authority lends itself to him understanding that I love him. You get that? Paul's saying I'm an apostle sent by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Just sets him up perfectly so that Timothy knows that this guy who's up here, when in verse 2 he comes down here and says, my beloved son, Timothy. It, it lays a foundation for him to encourage his son. Now, watch this. To Timothy, my beloved son. Here's, here's the heart of Paul. And here's his, here's his earnest wish. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You've seen this sort of phrasing from Paul before. Anytime he starts a letter, he says something like grace and peace to you. Whoever he's writing to this phrase, however, is unique because he inserts an extra word and he only inserts this extra word when he talks to Timothy in first Timothy and second Timothy. He inserts the extra word mercy. Everybody else, you get grace and peace. Timothy, my beloved son, as if you were my own, not just grace and peace. Now, let me explain just briefly what grace and peace are and then mercy. Grace 
is a way of saying that my desire for you from God himself is that God bestow all of his beauty, all of his favor, all of his sweetness, all of his loveliness, his generosity, his free giving to you. That's grace. And so when Paul says grace to any of these in the introductions, that's what he's trying to convey here. It's not just it's not just a word to glance over. Paul's earnest desire is that the beauty of God, the favor of God, that extends universally to Jews and Gentiles, it just goes out. That's what grace is. He says, I, I pray that for you, Timothy. Peace. Another common, another common greeting. Peace is common because that is typically how a Jew would greet themselves to another Jew. Peace be unto you. Now, peace to a Jew in the greeting was not just an absence of bad stuff. It wasn't just that I'm saying I hope nothing goes wrong for you, but it was saying that I hope that there is a full totality of goodness for you. So, Timothy, grace and peace. But he also slides in to just Timothy, mercy. Now, isn't that interesting? Here's what mercy is. It is sometimes translated loving kindness. It's also in its Hebrew version all throughout the Old Testament, specifically in the Psalms, used, I think, 127 times in the Psalms to convey that God himself will come down to where you are and be your help in a time of need. That's all wrapped up and that's all understood when Paul says to Timothy and mercy to you as well, that in a hard day, not just grace, not just peace, but I wish for you God's mercy, that he will visit you empower you, protect you, that he will be your God in time of need. And mercy, as we we understand it, is that thing that he extends to us beyond grace and beyond peace and restrains the bad stuff. He is merciful. And Paul wishes this for Timothy. You see his heart right here? Keep going. Verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Now, there's two thoughts here. Number one, how encouraging would it be for Timothy that this apostle is thankful for him? If you're the young man in the faith, if you're the young man in the faith that Paul had to write to before and say, don't worry if they look at you. If they look down upon you because of your age, he's the new guy in the game, so to speak. He's the second string quarterback, so to speak. And Paul has already encouraged him from time to time saying, don't let them look down upon you because of your age. Listen, as a matter of fact here, verse three, I thank God for you. Now skip over that next phrase who I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. We'll set that aside for just a second. And he finishes the thought. I thank God for you constantly remembering you in my prayers night and day. Now, how encouraging is it if you know that the apostle is thankful for you? Have you ever had someone that you respect highly let you know that they are thankful to God for you? Have you ever had that? Think about it a different way. Have you ever been thankful to God for someone in particular? Has there been anyone in your life that you, when you think about them, you actually say, you know what? God, thank you for putting that person in my life. I hope so. I hope so. That's part of what is going on in this passage, that Timothy has that in Paul. But has anyone ever thanked God for you? Maybe that's a challenge point question in this sermon. 
Is there anyone out there that when they think about you because of your blessedness in their life, they're thankful to God? How encouraging is that, that Timothy knows that the Apostle Paul, in his prayers, says, God, I'm so thankful for Timothy. You think that motivates? You think that undergirds this young man? I bet it does. Not just that. He's not just thankful to him, but that the, that the apostle would be praying for him. And not just praying on occasion for him. Notice what it says. End of verse 3. Constantly remembering you in my prayers, night and day. Now, my ninth grade English teacher would have taken his red marker and drawn a big red circle around this and put an R on it for redundancy. But it's intentional by the Apostle Paul. He could have just said, I constantly remember you in my prayers, right? That means that I'm always remembering you in my prayers. But he doesn't. He gets redundant here. He says, I'm constantly remembering you in my prayers night and day. So that Timothy knows you're always on my heart. I'm thanking God for you. And when I pray, I'm praying for you all the time. Praying for you all the time. You think there's any encouragement in that? That someone knows that you're praying for them. Now, there's power in the prayer that if you're praying for somebody from the inside out, God is going to make sure that that prayer does what he intends it to do in you to encourage you. But think about the idea of you letting someone know that you're praying for them constantly night and day. You understand the external encouragement that comes? So God is doing his work through your prayer, but you letting them know, Paul, the apostle, saying to Timothy, his beloved son, I'm praying for you this way. You think Timothy can take a seat on the sideline after hearing that? That the apostle Paul considers him a son and he's praying for him night and day? You think Paul, uh, you think Timothy can sit on the sideline after that? No. This is the best pep talk in the history of the game. I can just see Timothy starting to get out of his seat and stand tall because of the words that are coming from his spiritual father here. Keep going. Verse 4. Not only that, Paul says, I long to see you, even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. The heart of the Apostle Paul indicated to this young man is that he he longs to see him. The strength of that word in the Greek cannot be overstated. His desire in the innermost parts as he sits in this cold, dark, damp dungeon is to see his son. You think that's an encouragement to Timothy? You better believe it. And Paul lets him know. There's an interesting play on words here. He says, even as I recall your tears, that I may be filled with joy. The word tears and the word joy are similar in the Greek. So that if you're reading this in the Greek, it's sort of a it's sort of an alliteration. It's sort of a connection on the tongue, so to speak. What are Timothy's tears? It could be a couple things. Let me let me share these with you. Number one, it could be that the last time Timothy saw Paul and he had to leave Paul, they they wept. There's a very good chance that at their last encounter, there was a hard parting of ways. And Timothy showed his affection for his spiritual father by weeping. And as Paul thinks back, he sees his son in tears as he walked away. And he says, you know what? As I remember your tears, I long to see you again so that I may be filled not with tears, but with joy. Or it could be, and here's, here's where I tend to lean. In a couple of verses, you're going to hear Paul say something about laying his hands on Timothy. It's a picture of Paul transferring his authority to Timothy, giving Timothy a spiritual authority. We do it in different ordinate, 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 
ordination, ordination services. You've seen, you've seen elders or deacons lay their hands on young men or women, and we ordain them or we bless them in a certain way. We do it in a symbolic way. Paul is going to do this. We're going to find out in a couple of verses. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. That when he laid his hands on Timothy, Timothy wept. I remember when I was uh, uh, at my first really full-time ministry job, I had yet to be officially ordained. I had been working in a few churches, but I had not yet officially been ordained. And the church I was at, they liked to take the appropriate steps. And so the pastor said, hey, why don't we do your ordination? And uh, we did it one Sunday night, I remember. And uh, this church was a large church, and they had, uh, what did they have? They had like 600 deacons or something like that. And I remember the pastor told me uh, very specifically, I thought it was odd. He said, bring a pillow with you. A pillow. Uh, he said, yeah, bring a pillow because we're going to have you kneel down at the altar and we're going to let our el- uh, deacons come by and each one of them are going to pray a blessing over you. They're going to lay hands on you and they're going to pray for you. I said, okay. So I brought a pillow and I was glad I did because with 600 or so deacons, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, uh, it took a whole long time and I was down there a while. But more importantly, here's what I remember. I remember, number one, that I had to bring a pillow and I thought that was odd. But number two, the most important thing I remember uh, or most uh, touching thing I remember uh, about that ordination is that I cried like a baby through the whole thing. And I remember as I wept thinking, I don't even exactly know why I'm crying The emotion of the thing, the power of the thing, of these men laying their hands on me, praying what they were praying for me at that time and for future ministry, it was powerful and moving. And and I cried like a baby. I kind of have the idea here in the context that that's maybe what Paul is referring to here when he says, I can't I can't wait to see you, Timothy, because I remember your tears. Now, if you're the guy with the hands laid And this guy down here is weeping. What do you sense? You sense humility. You sense a moving in the spirit. And and the heart of Paul has now gone out to Timothy to the point where he's in that dungeon all alone. It makes him want to see him all the more to the point where he says, when I think about your tears, my joy would be filled up. Would be filled up. Just by seeing you again. Watch this. Verse five. For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. Interesting turn he takes here. How are you going to encourage Timothy? He says, Timothy, I'm mindful of something. What I know as I sit in this dungeon, as I think about you and I remember your tears, is that I know that your faith is sincere. It's sincere. It's sincerely yours and it's sincerely Authentic. My words are terrible today. Authentic. It's genuine. It's not a sham. It's not fraudulent. Part of the way I know, he says, is because I think back to Lois, your grandmother. I think back to Eunice, your mom. On the first missionary journey, uh, most scholars believe that on Paul's first missionary journey, he ran into these two ladies and perhaps even stayed in their home. Two Hebrew ladies. And they were converted. Their faith had been completed in the Messiah. Paul had brought the news to them and planted the seed of faith in them. And now Paul recalls that Timothy's faith is sincere. It's sincere in part because he can think back and he can remember Lois and Eunice. 
And he says, you know what? I'm sure that that same faith that I saw in your grandmother when she was converted and I saw in your mom when she was converted is now in you. You see the encouragement here to Timothy? He's just undergirding him one thing after another, one thing after another to make sure that his foundation is secure for him to stand upon and do his ministry. Keep going. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh. Let me stop you right there. That's the fourth time that Paul has referred to recalling, remembering, reminding. You see it back in verse 3? As I constantly remember, verse 4, even as I recall, verse 5, be mindful. Verse 6, for this reason I remind you. Where is there encouragement? There is encouragement in remembering the truth, remembering the facts, remembering what God has done previously in your life. Where does encouragement come for for the believer? Not just Timothy, but for us. Thinking back to God's faithfulness. How do we undergird ourselves so that we can stand and continue to do ministry? Has God been faithful in the past? Yes, he has. So now as I face this, will he continue to be faithful in the future? Yes, he will. Remember, Timothy, remember, Timothy, I remember this about you. I remember that about you. As I think about your tears, as I think about your heritage. Okay? Now, let me tell you what Paul's doing here. Paul has given us his authority. He's given us his purpose, his authority, his apostleship in Christ Jesus, his purpose, this promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He's given us his heritage. Did you see that in verse three? I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my forefathers did. Now, a couple things here because I overlooked this earlier. He says when he serves with a clear conscience, essentially that his authority that he stated in verse one, his apostleship, it's not a paper tiger. You know what I mean by a paper tiger? If my son draws a picture of a tiger and he comes at me and says, like, I'm not real scared, right? It's, it's just a piece of paper. It's just words on a piece of paper. It's just crayon on a piece of paper. He says, my apostleship is not just a paper tiger. My apostleship has teeth to it. It actually bites because my life backs it up. You know, there were those who might have thought that Paul was in this dungeon because he brought it on himself, because he had failed somehow, that he had sinned somehow. It's the Job friend complex. Job, what have you done? Repent. Confess your sins that God may restore you. Yeah? We have a tendency to think when someone is in a dungeon that maybe they've done something wrong. It's as if Paul says here, listen, uh, let me tell you that my, my apostleship, my authority, it shows itself in my life. I'm sitting here in this dungeon, but my conscience is clean. I've served God with a clear conscience. I'm not here by any doing of my own. I'm here because of that promise of life in Christ Jesus that I've been proclaiming. That's why I'm here. So I'm thanking God for you, whom I serve with a clear conscience. The way my forefathers did, and that's an odd statement. He recalls his own personal heritage here, and he says, I've served faithfully just like my forefathers did. Now, Paul, as Philippians tells us, he was a Hebrew among Hebrews. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. You remember that whole long list they give you? If anybody can uh, brag about their flesh, if anybody can brag about what they've done or who they are, anything about their heritage, uh, I'm a Jew among Jews. I'm a Pharisee among Pharisees. I've got the lineage to prove it. He was a Hebrew among Hebrews. He was also, I don't know if you realize this, he was also a Roman citizen. It actually got him out of a couple beatings, you remember? Anytime he found himself in Rome and he was about to be, he was about to be uh, whipped, 
there were a couple occasions where he could he could depend on his Roman citizenship to get him out of trouble. And he did so. It didn't always save him. Didn't save him at this point. But it saved him a couple lashes. How do you get Roman citizenship if you're a Hebrew among Hebrews, if you're a Jew among Jews, if you're from the tribe of Benjamin? The most common way that could happen, check this out, the most common way that could happen is that somebody in Paul's family, some man or woman in Paul's family, previous to Paul's life, had earned Roman citizenship. How do you do that? You have to do some great act, some great kindness, towards Rome, some good altruistic activity towards Rome so that they would look at you and now say, you're granted Roman citizenship. You had to be faithful. You couldn't have, you couldn't have done anything to offend Rome. You had to do actually something that would impress Rome so you earn that citizenship. So you see how this makes sense here? He says, listen, I'm in this dungeon and I'm, I'm serving God with a clear conscience. Just as my forefathers did. Perhaps indicating the guy back there in his heritage who served faithfully to such a degree that he blessed Rome. And so now he gets Roman citizenship and it saved Paul beatings. So here's what he does. Here's my authority. Here's my purpose. Here's my heritage. Here's my legacy. Okay. And my sincerity. And now he's going to build Timothy on all those same foundations. Timothy, I know your sincerity. I've seen it in your tears. I know your legacy. I've seen it in your grandmother and your mother. I know your purpose. God has granted you a gift by the laying on of my hands. And you have authority because I put my hands on you and I gave you that authority. And like father, like beloved son. You see that? Does Timothy have ground to stand upon and do the ministry as Paul passes the torch to him? You better believe it. Because in a very beautiful way, Paul has just said, you're just like me. Now here you are, like father, like son. Look at the next verse. Verse 6, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. At some point in time, whether it was at Timothy's conversion or maybe at a later time when he was ordained for ministry, Paul laid his hands on Timothy. And in in an apostolic transfer of authority, a gifting of the Spirit to him, Timothy was sent into ministry and God gave him the gift to accomplish that which he was gifted to do. And Paul says, don't forget it. I recall not just your heritage, I recall not just your sincerity, but I recall laying my hands on you. And I recall God doing something in you to set you on this course. Think that's an encouragement? As Timothy recalls now through the words of Paul who sits in a dungeon. I think so. I think so. And what is what is Timothy to do? It's as it's as if Paul says, This gift in you is this hot coal that God has planted at the base of your faith. Timothy That coal needs to be kindled afresh on a regular basis. And everything in this world would like to put that fire out. But the picture Paul paints here for Timothy is, Timothy, you've got to fan that fire into a flame. Maybe that coal 
as he sees it in Timothy, is just a white hot or red hot coal and there is no flame. He says, Timothy, every day we've got to blow on that coal so that it flames up to continue the work that we're doing. Who better, who better to speak about fanning a flame than a guy who's sitting in a dungeon? Remember I told you in the introduction, Paul has nothing to do with health and wealth gospel ministry, does he? No. Why? Because it wasn't true. It wasn't valid. He's sitting in a dungeon. Who better to say to Timothy, listen, don't let that flame go out. And Paul blows on Timothy's heart in these first few verses so that he won't let that flame go out. And he says, Timothy, remember, remember, remember your authority, your legacy, your sincerity, your purpose, just like mine. Now, look at the next verse. Verse 7, for, not, for God has not given us, me and you, Timothy, you're right here with me. And here's what I need you to know. God has not given us a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but of power, love, and self-discipline. That's what we get from our God. You think Timothy's been undergirded here sufficiently by the apostle? I think so. Um, story goes that uh, Abraham Lincoln, in, uh, in really the, the hottest part of the Civil War, made a uh, habit of sneaking out from time to time and uh, going to a church not far from where he was there in Washington, D.C., and he would sneak into their midweek service. And he would sit off to the back so that nobody would notice because if they noticed, uh, the war at this time was tearing the nation apart. And if they noticed, you know, they would all be distracted. And, and so he would sneak in with one of his aides and he would sit back in the corner near the pastor's study. And he would sit with his stovepipe hat in his lap and he would listen. And uh, one time, story goes, the sermon was over, and he picked up his hat, straightened his coat, and turned to walk out. And his aide stopped him, and his aide said, uh, Mr. President, uh, how, do you, uh, how did you feel about the sermon today? And Lincoln's words were, uh, I thought the sermon to be well thought out and eloquent. And the aide said, so I guess, I guess you liked the sermon today, I guess. He thought it was a good sermon then. And he said, no, I thought it was an utter failure. And the aide said, well, why? What's the reason it was a failure? And Lincoln's response as he walked out was because he failed to call us to something great. Failed to call us to something great. And I thought about uh, this week and last week as we preparing to look at this text. Where are we in this text, Cornerstone? And can we just walk away from seeing what Paul has done here for Timothy, embracing it even, amening it even, and walk away and fail to be called to something great? So let me, let me call you to something great here so that this message is not an utter failure. Um, there is, there's a whole lot here to challenge us. But let me, let me boil it down, if you will. To relationships. Our calling as a church is to 
build into and speak into the relationships we have and to begin more relationships for a reason. We have been given in our calling, in our giftedness, and you have whatever giftedness God has given you, but you have a giftedness. You have a responsibility, church, to fan it into a flame, to be undergirded with encouragement of all these ways that Paul undergirded Timothy, but to fan that spark that God has planted in you into flame so that it could be white hot and it could be a light in this dark world. And we, we utilize it through our relationships. We have a great responsibility as we pass this baton to find relationships to build into men and women and be built into as men and women. Amen? Does that make sense? Each one of us, we have to find the places where we can build relationships so that some things can be said about us and we can say some things about someone else like Paul and Timothy. I mean, do you ever pray for someone like that? Does anyone ever pray for you like that? Do you give them any reason to pray for you like that? Do you give them any reason to speak of you like that? Is there anybody who's thanking God for you because of, because of your heart for the gospel? Because of your tears of sincerity? Is anybody thinking of you like that? Do you think of anyone like that? Does anyone come to mind that when you're praying you just... You have to thank God just at the recollection of them. There must be in the church, for the church to be successful, relationships that come somewhere near this great relationship of Paul and Timothy. Amen? For all of us, and no one is exempt, we need in the church, Titus 2, older men and older women, looking down the line for younger men and younger women that they can grab hold and give them a hand up in this life, that you can look at them and call them spiritual children. Amen? We need men and women mature in their faith to step up and do that. A church is not a church if if we don't have that. We need young men and young women, young boys and young girls, having it in them that will make themselves available to be taught, to be mentored, to be discipled by Pauls. Amen? I met with a guy, I met a, this, this elderly gentleman. He's in McDonald's very often when, uh, when I'm uh, there. And uh, I've gotten uh, to talk with him several times. And uh, he's somewhat of a lonely guy. Um, his family, I think, has all passed on. And I was, I was just speaking with him a couple weeks ago, and he began to weep. And he began to just tell me, well, he asked me the question. He said, Pastor, is there anything wrong with me wanting to just go on and, and go to heaven? And he wasn't saying it in a suicidal way. He was saying it like Paul would say it. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But his heart was fully on the part to die would just be gain. He was, he's just in a lonely place. And the word I, I felt that I needed to encourage him with was, don't forget the other part of that, brother. To live as Christ, and it may not be an easy rest of your life for the remaining of your days, but we need you. There are young men like me that need to hear your stories of faithfulness. Now, here was his response. He kind of chuckled, and he said, nobody wants to hear from an old man these days. What a shame. (laughs) What a shame. And we're losing that generation after generation after generation, aren't we? 
unless the young men who have young children in this church right now will speak into our young men and to our young women and give them a reason to listen to the stories. Amen. Teach them about that heritage that it's worth sitting and listening to grandpa's stories. We're losing. We're losing that. Generation after generation. We don't want to hear those old stories anymore. We need men who will pass it down. We need women who will pass it down. We need young men who understand the value in listening and linking themselves to someone who's willing to pour into them. Amen. Uh, let me speak to a couple more of you. Maybe, maybe you're uh, retirement and uh, you don't have anyone necessarily that you can speak into anymore. It's getting more difficult. You're not in the workplace. You're at home more often. Uh, maybe relationships uh, are a little fewer and further between. Uh, let me just say that we need you as well. I read a story about a guy in Kentucky who hit retirement. And one day he was sitting on his front porch just rocking away. And uh, the mailman came and put his Social Security check in the mailbox. So he got up out of his rocking chair and went to the mailbox and picked up his Social Security check. And as he was walking back to his rocking chair, the thought occurred to him. He said, if the rest of my life looks like this, me rocking in this rocking chair, waiting for my Social Security check, picking it up and going back and rocking my life away. He said, I am I am sorely discouraged. And so here's what he did. He got a legal pad and he started writing down all of the good things God had done for him, all of his blessings, the big ones. And then he got down to the small ones, even those that just came to mind that nobody else would really care about. And he thought maybe they're insignificant, but he thought of all the things that God had done for him. Right down to the fact that he was the only person in the whole wide world that knew his mama's fried chicken recipe and that she used 11 herbs and spices and only he knew that recipe. And he said, I'm going to get up out of this rocking chair and I'm going to go get another job. And he went down to a restaurant and he said, hey, can I cook your fried chicken? I got a fried chicken recipe. And they let him start cooking fried chicken. And it became the most popular item on the menu. And then he decided, I'm going to start my own restaurant and sell my own chicken. Until he sold out to some multi-million dollar corporation and they started making his Kentucky fried chicken. And asked him to just be the figurehead and the representative. And that's how he finished out his life. And he could have just rocked it away. But God still had something for him. Um, from 8 to 80 plus, whatever you are, we need you in the church. We need your faithfulness. We need your stories. Um, can, I, can I give all of us just a place to start? This makes complete sense, doesn't it? Just start in your home. I've got to start with my sons. I mean, even as a professional full-time minister who has a calling beyond my own home, I've got to start there, right? Because if I'm not doing it with my own kids, I mean, what good will it do for me to do it out here? In fact, that actually disqualifies me if I'm not starting with my own children. So if you need a place to start, maybe you start there. Maybe your kids are grown. Well, don't make the assumption that your kids don't still need your spiritual guidance. I hope you can offer it to them. And maybe you got grandchildren running around now. And hear me say, you have a responsibility, Lois, to the faith and the sincere faith of your grandbabies. And you've got to be willing to tell those stories. You've got to be willing to speak truth into their life. You've got to be willing to live your life in such a way that they can watch you, not just mom and dad. Amen? 
It's been said that uh, God has no grandchildren. That makes sense. You heard that before? Uh, And to the degree that what that is saying is that God has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. What what they mean by that is um, faith doesn't come through your heritage as if you inherit it. It's born into you. And because your parents were uh, Christians and your grandparents were Christians, you're automatically a Christian. All right. So what that means is God has no grandchildren. It's not going to work that way. It's not just born into you. But in the sense that that Timothy had Lois and Eunice, there is a there is a great need for heritage and legacy. That's that's why we're together. That's why we have a church family. Amen. You seen how this works? And maybe. Maybe, let me finish here, maybe you don't have any kids of your own. Um, Can I tell you there's a great need for adoption in God's house? In fact, Timothy was adopted by his spiritual father, Paul. And he thought of him as his own. And he poured into his life. Timothy's mom and grandma were Hebrew among Hebrews. His dad was a Greek. Very likely his dad is... Long gone, either walked away from Timothy. Most scholars believe he's probably passed on. Most scholars also believe that he was not a believer himself. And what that does is it gives us the picture that Paul, having led grandma and mom to faith, on that first missionary journey, he sees wee little Timothy running around. And he starts to hear stories of Timothy's faithfulness. And anytime he comes back to visit, he pours into this young man to the point now at the end of his life, it's the only person he calls to see. It's the only one he says he longs to see him. And he spends his last ink on this young man that's not even his own. There is a great need. Uh, Can I tell you that I had no uh, father to pour into me spiritually speaking? I had a grandfather who was raised Catholic but was a, was a Christian. And uh, he poured morals and values into me. Uh, and, I, and I saw spirituality into him. But he didn't, he didn't necessarily uh, pour Christianity and Christ and a love for Jesus into me. That wasn't part of my heritage. You know what I look back on? I look back on men in the faith who adopted me. I look back at the pastor when I was saved in high school. And I would just start going and bugging him to death. I would just hang out at his house. I said, can I go to visitation with you? And, and I'm sure I annoyed him, but he let me go. He spent time with me. He became, in a sense, a spiritual father. And he allowed me to be a spiritual son. And he had kids of his own, but he, he adopted me in that sense. And I can, I can take you through different men in different phases of my life who I let, and that's part of my responsibility, But they stepped up and they grabbed hold of a guy who's trying to be faithful, falling on his face, and say, I'll help you along the way. That's got to be part of what happens here in the church. Amen? We need each other. Desperately. We need each other. I was watching um, It's a Wonderful Life this past week. Uh, I bought it on DVD because... Uh, it, it seemed like a couple years ago you couldn't turn the TV on from Thanksgiving through New Year's without uh, Christmas movies taking over all the channels. We can't, I can't really find them uh, this year uh, or in the last couple years. And so I went out and I bought some of the great ones, okay, you know. 
Uh, it's a Wonderful Life is one of the best Christmas movies out there. Pro- probably, arguably, the best serious Christmas movie. Uh, second only in serious Christmas movies to um, uh, Scrooge. Ebenezer, what's, that, what's that one? Um, it's not called Scrooge. What's Christmas Carol. Uh, and you've got to get the one with George C. Scott. All the other ones are second rate. Anyway, uh, but It's a Wonderful Life as a serious Christmas movie because if you get out of the serious category, you've got to put Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase. Christmas Story, Don't Shoot Your Eye with a BB Gun. Those are right up there. But serious Christmas movies, It's a Wonderful Life is the classic. And so I pulled it out, watched it the other night. Kids are running around. And I, and I heard a, a line in it that I never really took notice of before. At the very beginning, you got the little stars there and the stars, the angels, the guardian angels are kind of flashing back and forth and they're talking about George Bailey. You remember this part? And you got, uh, you got the different angels and they pull in Clarence, right, who still needs his wings. And Clarence comes buzzing in and he's this little flashing light and he seems real hyper and whatnot. And, uh, and they're telling Clarence about George Bailey. And the other angel says to Clarence, he's in a, he's in a hard spot. He's having, he's having a lot of trouble right now. And Clarence says, what, is he sick? And the other angel says, no, he's not sick. Is he, is he, is he, uh, and he went through all these different things. Is he this? Is he that? Is he, and, and the angel said, no, worse, he's discouraged. And Clarence says, ooh, that is a problem. And I thought, you know what? Satan has his favorite tool, doesn't he? <laughs> he has his favorite tool. And, and, the hope of overcoming discouragement in large part comes in the form of you and I speaking words of life to the second string quarterback, encouraging him. Let's pray. Father God, we, we like Timothy, we need the encouragement. And we can take it from Paul. It's there. It doesn't end on Timothy. Uh, thankfully, the divinely inspired word passes right past Timothy and it lands squarely on us. And we reap the benefits and we have an authority and we have a purpose and we have hopefully a sincerity and we have hopefully a legacy. Just as Paul, just as Timothy. Lord, the part of those things that that falls to us as responsibility. Would you help us? We need those foundational stones to undergird us if we're going to move forward in the work of this ministry. If Cornerstone Church in 2011 is going to be what you want us to be, then we need all these pieces. We need it to be true of us that there are legacies, that there are grandmothers and grandfathers and mothers and fathers. There are adopted brothers and sisters, that there is a family of God that rallies around each other to undergird each other. We're going to need it, Father, if we're going to move forward and do the ministry, just as Paul is saying to Timothy that he needs to be faithful in. We need these encouragements. So, Father, to whatever part we have in this Teach us, teach us what part we have to play in the family of God. And Lord, maybe we don't know where our Timothy is. Maybe he hasn't become clear to us yet. Maybe we do know. Maybe we have children of our own, small, or maybe grown, who do not know you. Maybe we have children and grandchildren who are in a home that is 
godless. Where you have been all but forgotten. And maybe you were never remembered. We have, a, we have a part to play there. Would you give us the encouragement we need to be the part you've called us to play in those lives? Teach us, God. Challenge us this morning as we sing this final song. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We're going to sing one more song. And as you uh, continue in this Christmas season, I ask that you would, uh, why don't you ask God to make it clear to you what part he wants you to play in this family. Amen? And let me say this. If you want help, if you say, I, I want to, Pastor, I want to make myself available. Maybe you know someone who's dumber than me that I can help. Amen? That's my way of encouraging the saints. You say, well, I don't, I don't know enough. I, I don't know enough of my Bible myself. Uh, I, how could I be of help to anybody? That's where I say, we'll find someone dumber than you. Okay? Tongue in cheek. We need you. And if you're looking to make yourself available, say, Pastor, if you think of any reason that I can be used, I'm going to be asking God to show me. But if you think of any reason, if you see me useful in any of these ways, let me know I'm available. If there's a man out there who needs, who needs someone to link arms with, I'll make myself available. If there's a young man or a young woman out there who needs someone to adopt them spiritually, I'll make myself available. And I'll pray that God give me what I need to do it. But I'll be here. You let me know. You let me know. Amen.